you know, invite a friend, bring them to dinner, and I, and I know we can start the journey with some other people. And as you heard, Eric said, I had no idea what I was. He came for a free meal and found Jesus, and that to me is exciting. All right, I'm going to have us turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Revelation. We've been doing a study on that book. And uh, I want us to pray because I recognize that uh, the book of Revelation is, it is a challenging book to understand. It's, the, it's probably the most difficult book. That's probably why I've never preached through this book before. I'm, I've been pastoring for 35 years, so you can imagine. It's taken me a while to come to this place. So let's pray tonight that God will just open our hearts and minds as we study this chapter together. And I believe God's going to speak into our lives. So Father, I pray that you'd give us clarity of thought, that you'd open our understanding that, Lord, when we leave this place, we'll have a deeper appreciation for what you've accomplished for us, how your kingdom has come, how your kingdom is prevailing. And, Father, I pray that we will be your people, Lord, making an immense difference in the culture in which we're living in, where we see so much evil transpiring. I pray, Father, that we will not live in fear, but we will live with a quiet confidence in your goodness and in your grace. And Father, I pray that we will be uh, influencers. We will be lights. We will be salt in our world. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. One of the most insightful stories in the Old Testament, we'll get to the book of Revelation, but I love this story, and I think it kind of highlights a little bit of what we're going to talk about tonight, is the story of a man by the name of Elisha. Elisha was a prophet, and he was basically getting insight from Almighty God as to the movement, the military movement of his nation's enemies, the king of Aram or Syria. And every time the king would be setting up some trap for the king of Israel, uh, God would speak into the life of Elisha. Elisha would warn the king and the king would be delivered from this threat against his kingdom. And so how many know that when that starts happening, you start to wonder, especially when you don't have a faith in God, you go, who in my council is telling the enemy my plans? And finally, they convinced the king. They said, no, it's nobody here telling secrets. We have spies in their camp, and we know what's going on. There's a man named Elisha. He keeps delivering God's message to his king, and that's why he knows every move you make, even every thought you make. So um, the king made a decision. He decided the way to, to deal with the problem was to capture this one man. And so I love the story because the king sends an army to capture one person. Could you imagine being the kind of person that it takes an army to stop. You know, that's what I think about when I think about Elisha, the man that it took an army to stop. Well, anyways, they come along and they found, find out that he's staying in a city called Dothan. And when they get there, uh, we pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. And in verse 15, it said, and when the servant of the man of God, so Elisha had someone he was mentoring, when the servant of, of Elisha got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. I mean, this guy is in panic mode. How many know that this does not look good? And uh, Elisha, you know, he, he says, don't be afraid. 
How many love the Bible? I, you know, this, this must be one of the number one texts in the Bible. Don't be afraid. It just tells you as human beings how often we're fearful of what's happening in our lives. And so he said, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I'm sure when Elisha said this, his servant looked at him and went, really? You know, Come on now, there's a whole army here to arrest this one guy. And, and Elisha says, hey, relax, there's more for us than there are against us. And he couldn't see it. And then we get this beautiful prayer. This is an insight into something I think we all need to see. He said, and Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. That's my prayer for us tonight. Open our eyes so we can see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, God's angelic army had surrounded the other army. And so what Elisha was seeing was a lot different than what his servant had seen. So that's why he could say with confidence, there's more for us than there are for them. Isn't that an amazing thought? I love this story. And so... Then we read, as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike them, these people, with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And if you continue the story, they come up and they said, we're looking for, I mean, they're blind now. They're groping about. They're saying, we're looking for this man named Elisha. He goes, I know the guy. How many know? He's the guy, right? He says, and I know where he is. Follow me. And so Elisha leads them from the city of Dothan to the capital city where the king of Israel is, to Samaria, and they enter into the city, and now they are all captives to the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel going, here's my enemies. They're now captured, you know? A man who captured an entire army. How many think that would be the name of a good book, you know? Yeah, so the king is rubbing his hands. He said, shall we kill these guys? He goes, now listen, if you were fighting a battle and you captured these people, you certainly wouldn't kill them. I'll tell you what to do. Why don't we feed them, bless them, and send them back to their king? Now, I don't know about you, but there's something about that story that's, that really ties into where the New Testament is at because didn't Jesus teach us what we ought to do with our enemies? You know, what does Jesus say we should do to our enemies? He says, bless them and do good to them. Isn't that exactly the same counsel that Elisha is now giving the king of Israel? That's exactly what they did. What a powerful story. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? Because what we normally see is temporal. And everything that we're looking at right now, all of us are looking at the same thing, basically. What we're seeing is temporary. Everything that is visible is temporary. And everything that is unseen is eternal. And that's why it's so crazy sometimes. You know, we think people are, you know, funny because they're going to believe God's word over what they see. But yet what God is saying is eternal. What we see is temporary. So all of our problems tonight, all of our challenges tonight, all of our difficulties tonight, they're all temporary. How many go, I like that. How many of you like to think all of your problems are just temporary problems? But usually when we're in the middle of a problem, don't we act as if that's the only thing that's going on? 
Don't we kind of overreact to all of our troubles? Isn't that, come on, how many here say, Pastor, I have a little tendency to overreact to my troubles. Anybody? Come on, let's be honest. You know, and some of you have been staying awake at night and you've been worried about different things. And I want to point out to you that those things are all temporary. They're all going to pass away. I can guarantee you they're all going to come to an end. Your troubles are going to go away one day. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? That should encourage us. But what God has to say is eternal. And that's why what we're doing here tonight is so profound. Because what we're doing is feeding our soul on something that is eternal in nature. And something that can sustain us in the midst of our temporary problems. I like that. Now last Sunday we concluded a sermon on chapter 11. Now the book of Revelation, you know... I'm a chronological thinker. Maybe some of you are. But the book of Revelation does not play out chronologically. Actually, chapter 11, we could actually say is the last chapter. Because we read in chapter 11 that the kingdoms of this world now have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ or Messiah. And so we have the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, And I love that text. And if you were here last Sunday, and some of you were, I got so excited at the last point. Remember that? How many go past you got so wired up? Because I was so enthused, the fact that this kingdom is going to finally have the king rule and reign in this world. And you know, all of our human leaders, no matter how hard they try, they're going to mess up, right? Somewhere. They're not going to do it perfectly. But when Jesus comes back, his kingdom will be a forever kingdom. His kingdom will endure forever, and he is the perfect king. And he knows what is best for all of us, and he does what is best for all of us. So I'm, I'm excited about that day. Now, in the meantime, we're having... Uh, a little bit of a you know, play out here from chapter 12 to the end of the book is actually detailed how evil is going to be addressed in this world. And how many know evil is still happening? Does anybody notice there's a little bit of evil in our world and it's still occurring? So how is God going to address evil? And especially when we feel that you know, evil is seemingly winning out or it seems to be intensifying. Anybody get a feeling that you know, you know, things are really coming unglued? It just seems like evil is beginning to prevail. Anybody get that feeling? You know, it's, you know, these are not easy times. There's some challenges. But there's always been evil in our world. And so especially when we have been victimized by evil, it really you know, creates a lot of despair and pain in our lives. Robert Wall says this, he said, the practical problem of theodicy, which, you know, I have to explain this term. This is not a normal, this is a theological term. Theodicy is actually what we're, is the idea of vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. In other words, and we've all heard this thing, you know, if God is, if God exists, why is there evil? Or, you know, if there's such a good God, why is there the problem of evil in the world? That's the whole idea of trying to defend God is this idea of theodicy, Okay. But he says the practical problem of theodicy is that people do not always experience the triumph of God over evil. More often than not, they experience suffering and injustice. Isn't that true? You know, sometimes as Christians we go, hey, wait a minute, I'm a good guy. I'm on the right side. Why is there things happening to me? Anybody ever wonder that? Come on. Anybody ever question and you're, you're, you're concerned about that kind of stuff? Well, see, this chapter is now going to deal with the problem of evil. I kind of like that. So what does the Bible have to say about you know, what's going to happen to evil? And so we have a vision to give us a response to that question. How is God going to address evil? And it's a funny vision. You have a woman who's pregnant, a child about to be born, and a great red dragon. 
<laughs> you know, could you see the book now? Title page. You know, there's a woman, and she's got 12 stars on her head. She's standing on the moon. She's pregnant, and there's a great red dragon. Uh, that, that's the picture we're going to get here in chapter 12. And so we want to begin to understand what in the world this is about. Obviously, it's a vision. And you know, remember, if you were here, how many were here actually last week? And I kind of went over the four schools of, of interpretive thought in Book of Revelations. How many were here? Okay, here's what I'm going to say to you right now. In chapter 12, nobody's arguing because everybody knows it's symbolic, okay? So it's great. We know that these are symbols, but the question we have to ask ourselves are, is, what are they symbolic of? And so Dr. Craig Koyster shares in his presentation you know, that this story that John is seeing is actually, you know, he, he's taking an ancient myth and he's modernizing it for his moment. And so the ancient, how many have ever, you know, had to study Greek mythology in school? Anybody have to do that? I have my hand up. I had to study that. Nobody, very, a few of you. Okay, so let's give me a little Greek mythology. I'm not, I'm not a heretic here, but just bear with me because what John's going to do is take that story and he's going to Christianize it. He's going to transform it. That's what, you know, Christians do. So historians have noted that Revelation's story of the woman and the dragon has a plot line that is similar to other stories of good versus evil that has circulated in the ancient world. How many recognize that things like Star Wars are very popular today? And you go, why is Star Wars popular? It's because really it's a conflict between good and evil, right? And the good guys are trying to battle and save the empire from the, you know, the dark side. And you know, Steven Spielberg, he's, he's actually hitting on something. I think he's probably Jewish, and he has a little understanding of good and evil and what's going on in the Bible. So here's the story in the Greek mythology. There's a woman named Leto who is impregnated by the god Zeus. If you, if you've been, I've been actually by Mount Olympus, you know, where Zeus apparently with his pantheon of gods lived. And so Zeus was the chief god in the Greek pantheon. And Leto's adversary is a ferocious snake-like dragon named Python, which we say Python, who tried to kill her to prevent the birth of Zeus's children. And the two that are born, one is Apollo and the other is Artemis. And they're given arrows as gifts at their birth in which Apollo now slays the dragon. So when we read the story here in our text, we're going to find out that there's a dragon and there's a child that's going to be born of a woman. Now, in this dominant culture of the Romans, you know what the Romans did? They took all Greek things and they Romanized them. So they took all of the Greek gods and put Roman names on them. They, took, they, they just kind of assimilated Greek culture. And so in their thinking, these emperors stepped into the role. And they saw themselves as the god Apollo. This is amazing to me. And so they're the ones that are, because the dragon represents evil and chaos. And the Romans tried to portray themselves as the people that are bringing peace on earth. How many think that's amazing? But how did they bring about peace? By subjugating and, con- and conquering people and oppressing and, and you know, enslaving people. That's how they did it. So one of their historians, a man by the name of Livy, compares the rise of Caesar Augustus to the birth of Apollo. And actually a little later on, a number of years later, you have an emperor by the name of Nero who thinks he's Apollo. You know, And he, they, these guys want the people in their empire to worship them as a god. And that's where, that's where it gets to. 
Now, in John's eyes, the destructive forces of the dragon operating within the empire is not, you know, they're not, he's not being, you know, delivered by the emperor. Actually, the emperor, in John's mind, is an ally and later on, we're going to see it in other chapters. He's actually in cahoots with the dragon. He's actually form, formenting this great uh, oppression and, and fostering this evil in the empire. So the real champions that are resisting the dragon in the book of Revelation, and the dragon is the perpetrator and the source of all evil, the, per, the people that are resisting him, you know who they are? God's people. And so what I'm going to suggest tonight to all of us is that you and I are the people that must resist evil in our world. That actually the only people that are going to really resist evil are the people that trust in Christ. Are the people that are God's people on the planet. And so we have a great responsibility in this hour because we see a lot of evil happening. And when we don't resist evil, evil seems to grow and intensify. And we'll talk about that. So... Chapter 12 answers the question, why evil seems to be winning. (laughs) Why does it seem so pervasive? Ever wondered that? You know, we're dealing with this cosmic war and its ramifications, not only in the heavens, but on the earth. And so we're asking ourselves the question, what is really happening here? And how uh, how can we, as God's people triumph over evil. How many here, you want to be an overcomer? How many here, you want to win over evil? You want to win the battle over evil. You're going to identify with the people that are trying to stop the dark side from winning, okay? Does this make sense? So I'm making you guys all the heroes and the heroines following the great leader that battled evil. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's take a look. I think at, I got three keys, but I only got two. So two keys to living a victorious life. And the first one is understanding the source of evil. You have to understand where it's coming from. And if we don't grasp where evil originates, what we tend to do is find ourselves fighting with other people. Okay. Because we see people that are the ones that are bringing and, and propagating and championing, championing, championing these ideas that are actually evil. How many know what I'm talking about? So they're, they're coming through people. And so, so often what happens is the people who are, that are for evil things don't even realize that there are for evil things. They think they're for good things. They think they're championing freedom. They think they're championing all kinds of things. But in reality, they're blinded to what they're really being a champion for. And what happens is they themselves don't realize, and we'll see it later on, that evil, when you and I are captured by evil and we allow evil to rule and reign in our lives, eventually evil will devour us. We will become self-consumed by evil. And people don't realize that. And so they're championing the wrong thing. Okay, but happens sometimes as Christians, we see these people bringing this stuff and we think they're the adversary. And Paul, the apostle, reminds us that we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We have to remind ourselves that's not where the conflict is. You know, we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers in dark places. So we have to understand there's a spirit working behind the people. And that our job is to see that these people who are blinded and are being duped 
and deceived, we have to try to help that rescue them from the place of deception and darkness in which they're living in. Because Christ died for them, just like he died for us. And you and I once were there. You know, I was there. And, you know, how do you change sides? Well, you come to the realization that you're in a state of deception, you're wrong, and you need Christ as your Savior. Okay, so... Let's take a look at this vision, chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain and was about to give birth. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. We're going to come back to that statement. Verse 6. Oh, sorry. And and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. So what we're going to do here is look at the woman in John's vision. And it's very fascinating. Remember I told you before that John, you know, he's so full of the word of God that when he has a vision, what he's seeing is things from the Old Testament popping and coming to life. And, you know, we have a picture, the same terminology is used in the Old Testament of this, um, the moon and the sun and the, and the stars. And in Genesis chapter 37, we pick up the story. Remember Joseph, he's one of, the, of 12 sons of a man named Jacob or Israel. So he's from the tribe of Israel. And Joseph has a vision that his brothers are going to bow down to him, that he's going to be in a position of leadership. He's going to be a ruler over them. Well, in the first dream, he sees these sheaves bowing down. But in the second dream, and he says it here in chapter 37 of Genesis in verse 9, he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his fathers rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So the imagery is really about the nation of Israel. And so scholars can, you know, some scholars later on, you know, saw this picture as representing an individual called Mary, because we now know, as we're about to see, that the child that is going to be born is actually Jesus, the Messiah. But actually, the woman, if you want to really understand it, is the people of God. The woman, you know, is, you know, the people of God. In the Old Testament, we know that as people called Israel. But now, we're the new Israel. You know, as the church, we become part of that picture. And so when we see this woman, she's going to represent all of God's people. Okay. So Jesus now is going to be born. So the next figure that we see in next sign is actually the dragon. And then we pick up his story. And how many know it says here uh, in verse 9, we find out who he is because the dragon is hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Wow, that's a very powerful image. So now we know that the dragon, and John tells us who he is. He's actually the devil, Satan, or the serpent. They're all the same, same person, okay? And he's telling us that a third, which is a part of you know, these, these angels, 
Because we now know the stars are actually angels, and we know that from chapter 1, when the stars are being held, they're messengers. Now, sometimes messengers can be human messengers, and sometimes the stars are heavenly messengers like angels. And so we see that Satan is able to, you know, deceive and lead a rebellion, and these are now as well hurled to the ground. And we're going to find out here that the dragon is described as a very powerful force, a powerful uh, creature. That's maybe the best way to describe him. He's a dragon. He's got, you know, seven heads and ten horns. And, you know, horns actually speak of authority and strength and power in the Bible. And he's really a monster. That's a good picture. And I think John's giving us a picture that Satan is a monster. And, you know, I love the way Leon Morse brings it out. He says, evil is strong. How many know that you and I alone are no match for Satan? Apart from Christ, we're not going to overcome. This is a strong individual. The point of the seven heads is not immediately obvious, but in antiquity, several terrible beasts were said to have a multiplicity of heads. They were called a hydra. And the thought may be that of the immense vitality of such a creature or an animal. And, it's very, and this also that they're very difficult to kill. And you see all of these, you know, all these stories and mythology. They're trying to kill these creatures and how hard they are to destroy. In the same way, Opposition to the church and the part and powers of evil is persistent. We need to understand something. When you and I, you know, as Christians, we, we just want to, you know, most of us, we just want to mind our own business and live a quiet life. Isn't that true? And Paul tells us we should do that. But we also know that there's going to be opposition to the church. And evil keeps coming against it. And we need to be aware of where this evil is originating from. No sooner is it defeated in one place than it breaks out elsewhere. We should not overlook the fact that the beast, Satan's henchman, also has seven heads and ten horns and is scarlet in color. And we should understand that the evil we see on earth is made in the image of Satan. Just like, you know, God, you know, does make, creates things in his image, Satan is distorting the image of God and creating things in his image, which is a destructive image. Now, that's the second character in the, in the chapter. And then we get to the child who's about to be devoured by the dragon. In Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 it says when she gave birth to a son a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter now if we know our bibles immediately we should say oh i know what that is that's a quote from psalm 2 and psalm 2 is a messianic psalm it's really speaking of the anointed one that's coming and this leader this ruler this shepherd is going to rule with an iron scepter now think about iron iron is not easily broken so It's a picture that iron cannot be broken. God's kingdom will not be broken, folks. And we need to understand something. When Jesus comes to rule and reign, in which he is ruling and reigning in our hearts, the kingdom of God has come. It has come to us, but we're not seeing it extended to the entire world yet. But it will come to the entire world, and that kingdom will be an enduring kingdom. It will never be destroyed. That's so encouraging to us as Christians. So we recognize that Israel's giving birth to the Messiah and the dragon now is ready to destroy the child at birth. And some of us, we know the story. This should remind us of a story found in the Gospels. And that story is found in Matthew's Gospel where we read about Herod's attempt on destroying the life of Jesus. So the dragon now, uh, how many are getting a picture that Herod now is going to be, rep- is really being the dragon in this story? You see what's happening? You know, so John is using these, these, these pictures, but actually we see the actual actions 
And we see it here in the story. When, the, when they had gone, he's speaking of the Magi who had come to worship Jesus. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And we know what happens. Once Herod figured out that the Magi weren't returning, he had known you know, where they had, were headed to Bethlehem. And he knew that it had been less than two years. So he made a decision to destroy every male child in Bethlehem to make sure he destroyed the, the Messiah. But you see, Joseph had been warned and so had fled. And so Herod was unable to destroy Christ. Jesus was spared. God had spared him. God had literally snatched him away. But now in the story, it's not just about uh, being snatched away in the sense of, you know, being delivered from Herod. This is actually far more profound than that. He's caught up into heaven. So now John is abbreviating the story. He's not talking about Jesus' life. He's not talking about his death. He's not talking about his resurrection. He's only talking about his ascension. Why is he, why is he doing that? Because simply stated, John wants this message to encourage us as the church that even though the enemy attacks, God has an ability to preserve his people. God's purposes will prevail, even though the enemy comes against it. Now, Revelation 12 is really a Christmas story. Most of us, we think of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke. But I like what Eugene Peterson says. And he says it this way. It is St. John's spirit-appointed task to supplement the work of Matthew and Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness nor domesticated into worldliness. Now, what is he basically saying? You know what we've done with the Christmas story? It's, it's just a nice, cute little story now. You know, we have, in churches, we have Christmas pageant. Little kids are playing it out. You go, somebody's playing Mary, somebody's playing Joseph. You got little baby Jesus, you know, right? We've domesticated the story. Have we not? You know, it's just a very nice little story. And then every once in a while, we can remind ourselves of the human side of the story and all of the stress and anxiety and difficulty that Mary and Joseph were experiencing. But how about the spiritualized divine side? And here's what we're getting. When Jesus is being born, something dynamic is actually happening. This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than just wonder. It excites evil. Isn't that an amazing thought? So whenever God starts doing something, you can expect opposition to it. And how many, you can say that's true in your life. Whenever I try to do the right thing, I feel there's opposition to doing the right thing. Anybody experience that? Yeah, and that's why it's happening. Because you and I are actually doing the very same thing that Jesus is doing. I mean, whenever we're doing and we're being obedient, we can expect that there's going to be a pushback in this realm. It shouldn't shock us. Well, let me move on to the second point here. And it's simply this. First of all, we need to understand where evil originates. We know it comes from Satan. He's the originator, propagator. He's, you know, full of evil. He's out to destroy God's kingdom. He's out to destroy the Christ. He's out to destroy. Now, the children of the woman and the woman herself. Because no sooner is uh, the child snatched up to the throne, it says the woman now flees into the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? To a place prepared for her by God. Now, how many know that the wilderness actually has two meanings in the Bible? The wilderness, and it's almost two opposite meanings. Isn't that funny how God can take one idea and give two different, distinctly different meanings to it? And why, 
How do we know which meaning applies to what? Well, that's a good question. The woman, uh, the context always tells us which meaning to apply to the wilderness. For example, in the first meaning, the wilderness is a place of destitution. The wilderness is a place where there's temptation. You know, God brings his people into the wilderness, they're tempted. Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's tempted. There's a sense of lack in some sense. There's a sense of testing. There's a sense of difficulty. And, you know, look in your own lives. God many times leads us out of our bondage. You know, we're brand new Christians. You know, we give our lives to Christ. It's all exciting. Isn't that true? Boy, we're all overjoyed. And all of a sudden, we're tested. How many go, that's been my experience. I become a Christian and then I'm tested. You know, and I'm in this wilderness and I'm wondering, hey, where is God? Doesn't he care about me anymore? And why is it so hard to be a Christian right now? And I, you know, I used to be able to pray and God would answer just like that. And now I'm praying and there's no answer. There seems to be a delay. And I'm wondering, you know, why is there, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm questioning everything right now. I'm in the wilderness. I'm being tested in this wilderness. Now that's one description of the wilderness. But let me paint a different picture of the wilderness for you. Because why did God lead them into the wilderness? Well, he delivered them out of bondage, which is Egypt, and he brought them into the wilderness. But what did he do there in the wilderness? They were called to the wilderness in order to worship. He said, let my people go that they might worship me. And so they come into the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness that God reveals himself to the nation of Israel. Isn't that true? And in the wilderness, it was God coming down on Mount Sinai and gave him the law. It was in the wilderness that they saw the mountain shaking. They saw the presence and glory of God. And how many here can honestly say in your Christian life that when you've gone in these wilderness experiences, many times as you're seeking God, it's when you get through that wilderness, you look and you realize, wow, God made himself real to me in the wilderness. God provided for that nation for 40 years in the wilderness. God was able to set a table for them in the presence of their enemies in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place where we develop spiritual intimacy with God. It's a place where we actually, uh, you know, are removed from the distractions of this world. It's a beautiful place. You know, recently I was studying the book of Hosea. And it's interesting. The people of Israel are called the bride of, of God, right? Israel is the bride of God. And, but what had happened was Israel had been unfaithful to God. It had, it, all the blessings God had given Israel, they had consumed those blessings by being unfaithful to God and offering up all the blessings to other idols. And so God was warning them he was going to exile them. But there was an interesting text in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, therefore I'm now going to allure her. I'm going to win her. You see, I'm going to lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. What's God doing? He says, I want to bring her back to that place where I first encountered her in the wilderness. There I will give her back her vineyards and I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. <clears throat> What's God saying? I want to bring you back to the place where we first, you know, we first related to each other. It, you know, God says, I want to bring you back to the honeymoon stage. I want to bring you back to that place where we, we had intimacy, where we really connected, you know, where there was not all of these other distractions. God says, I want to bring you back to that place. Isn't that an amazing statement? And I believe that that's what God wants to do to his church. He wants to bring us to that place of spiritual intimacy. Why does he want that to happen? Because he knows that you and I need 
to have that experience with him so that we can handle all of the evil that's happening around us. Otherwise, evil seems to overcome us if we're not careful. Isn't that true? But here's, let's look at the defeat of the enemies and of their current status. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> then it says, Then the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. This is the great cosmic battle, the heavenly battle. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Who lost their place in heaven? Satan and his army of angels lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. If you want to understand why people can't get it, it's because they've been deceived and are being led astray. You know, it's not because they're stupid. It's just that they're blind. They can't get it. They're blinded by, you know, the nature of evil. It says, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So who is this Daniel? Uh, sorry, Michael. Well, the book of Daniel tells us he's the, he's the angel that's the prince over God's people. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Michael is later described in the book of June, verse 9, as an archangel. And then in Revelation 12, he's the leader of God's heavenly host against the battle, against the dragon and his angels. And they win the battle and they cast the dragon and his allies to earth. Now, this is fascinating to me. Some Jewish scholars believe that actually Isaiah talks about, you know, Satan being cast out of heaven. And a lot of people, and especially it was popularized by a, a Christian a theologian by the name of John Milton, who wrote a book, both, a poem called Paradise Lost, who kind of brings out the idea that Satan is cast out of heaven, and then he comes to the garden and he attempts man and the woman. But actually, other scholars are disputing that and saying, no, that's not what it's about, guys. You know, actually, at that point, Satan had access to heaven. And as a matter of fact, when you read the book of Job, you can see that Satan is an accuser. He's coming up to God, and God says to him, hey, where have you been hanging? You know, and uh, he answers, you know. It says, one day the sons of God, or the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. So what's going on here? Satan is actually in the heavens now talking to God. But he's been on the earth, you know, you know, and he's gathering information. And now he's accusing Job of a certain behavior. And he says in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? It's an accusation. God knows that Job fears God because he loves God. But Satan is an accuser, right? And we know the whole story. If you read that book, it's quite fascinating. I'm not going to go into that. But here's what you need to know. When was the enemy cast down out of heaven? And here's the thought. Remember when the disciples went out and they were taking authority over those demons and, and they were rejoicing that the spirits were subject to them? Jesus said this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And then in John's gospel, he said this, Now the time for judgment on this world now the prince of this world will be driven out. Who's he talking about, the prince of this world? He's talking about Satan. Where's he going to be driven out from? I think he's going to be driven out of heaven. So what I'm getting across to you is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, 
Paul tells you this from the book of Colossians, that he made an open spectacle. He triumphed over Satan. He, he defeated him. This is the battle. He's defeated. So now Satan is, is, is actually cast out of the presence of God. This is an interesting thought. So what is really going on? Well, his sphere is now limited. Because think about it. He no longer has access to, to the heavens, so he's limited to a certain geography. He's limited to the earth, okay? And then we read a little later on in this chapter, chapter 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So here's what... We need to understand the reason why it seems like evil is so pervasive is because Satan has a limited scope and sphere of operations called earth, and he has a limited time. And so you go, yeah, but he's been doing this for 2,000 years now, Pastor. That seems like a long time. I'm going, think about it. Is 2,000 years a long time in the scope of eternity? That is a short time. So he's only got a limited amount of time and a limited sphere to operate in. He's been cast down. Now, Knowing all of this, how do we have victory when we have an adversary in the sphere in which we're living in? It's a great question. Let's look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been what? Hurled down. He does not have the same ability any longer. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about that in the book of Romans, chapter 8. Who can accuse us? No, it's Christ standing, advocating on our behalf. See, we've always had this picture. He's up in heaven accusing us before the Father. I'm going to argue today, he's not there at all. He's limited to this geography. He's away. That's because he's been defeated. There's no longer any accusation against us. Christ has answered that. You and I don't stand justified before God because of what we have done. We stand justified before God because of what Christ has done. Hallelujah. That should, you know, that should give us such a song in our hearts. You know, I'm not standing on my righteousness. I'm standing in his righteousness. And then it says, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as shrink from death. So how do we triumph? Well, first of all, we're trusting in what Christ did, not in what we're doing. Okay? Now, that doesn't suggest that we become lazy and don't do anything. It just says that my hope is, tr- and is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and, right, and his righteousness. Right? That's where our hope is lying. We're lying in the, the finished work of Christ on Calvary. Then the second thing is by the word of their testimony. This is so powerful. See, you and I need to understand something. Our words are powerful on this planet. Jesus said your words are either going to condemn you or acquit you. So if you are confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's powerful language. That's actually acquitting you. That means you're putting your trust in Christ. You know, as a matter of fact, part of the warfare is for us willing to stand up and say we're Christians. Didn't Jesus say that if you're willing to confess 
before men. Jesus said, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father in heaven. How many think confessing is kind of important? So what do you mean by confessing, Pastor? Well, listen to what Paul says to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. He said, fight the good fight of faith. Well, how do I do that? He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Do you know how important it is for me to stand up and say I'm a Christian? That's extremely important. Now, how many know it's pretty easy to do it here? Why? Because we're fellow believers, right? This is easy. How would you like to be in a room full of people that are, that are against Christianity and you're standing up and saying, I'm a Christian? You know, how many go, that's a little harder, Right? But that's where we need to be able to do it. You and I should not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. And folks, that's how we resist evil. You see, one of the reasons why evil seems to be prevailing is because Christians tend to be silent. We don't resist it. We don't stand up and say, hey, that's not true. That's not right. Mm. Listen. Look at Jesus, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What did Jesus do? He stood up and said to Pilate, I'm the truth. You know, Jesus made a good confession. He stood before the Sanhedrin, he stood before Pilate. If Jesus had not made the good confession, he would still, he would not have had to die. How many see that? But the fact that he was willing to make the good confession cost him his life. And you and I need to get to the place in our lives where we're willing willing to make the good confession because it says here we overcome not only by the word of our testimony, but we do not love our lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, we're willing to die to our reputation. You know, a lot of times we're just silent because we're afraid of what people will think of us. Come on, let's be truthful about this. We're more concerned about reputation than we are about standing for Christ. We're more concerned about seeming to blend in than we are concerned about the truth. You know, and think about what Paul says a little later on in Ephesians chapter 6. We'll get there. Uh, In 13, he says, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. That's how you resist evil. How? By putting on the full armor of God. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now think about this. As Christians, you know, do we, are we, have, do we have the full armor of God on? Well, what's part of the armor? The first piece is the belt of truth. And what is our society talking about today? There is no truth. And the moment you say, well, no, there is truth, you've got the belt of truth on. And how many know that what happens is when, we, when we're really lax, can you imagine getting ready to fight a war and you're going, oh, I'm so tired of wearing this crazy junk. I'm going to take off this breastplate of righteousness, throw it to the side, lay my shield down. Meanwhile, arrows are flying at me. I mean, how you'd go, well, that's ridiculous. What soldier in his right mind fighting a battle is going to get rid of his armor so that he's defenseless in the battle? You'd go, he's crazy, right? Yes. But you know, sometimes as Christians, we forget we're in a battle. We just start relaxing. We're not standing up for the truth, you know? No, we're just carrying on as if it's, there's nothing going on. There's no war. There's no battle. There's no nothing. 
I think we have to understand something. There is a major spiritual battle going on and it's for the souls of people and it's for our own soul and we just better get our heads in the game kind of a thing and recognize evil is out there and the reason why it seems so strong is because we become very complacent toward it. You know, I just love what John uh, Kluster says and, and I, this, I think, this is what this chapter is answering. The reason why evil seems so powerful and persuasive and prevailing, and he says it this way, John recognized that it's easy to think of evil working relentlessly on earth because it's so powerful. But now he's going to turn the perception upside down. You know, for John, evil seems relentless not because it's so powerful, but because it's so desperate and it's losing. How many have ever thought of it that way? limited sphere, limited time. You know, think about it. I'm going to give you an illustration. In World War II, the Allies invaded Normandy. How many know, in essence, once they landed in Europe, that was really, the battle was now all but done. You know, the enemy was now, no they're not going to win this war. But you know what they did? There was another battle a little further on in, around where Belgium is and France, a battle called the Battle of the Bulge. How many have heard of that? That was the last great German offensive. They were pushing everything they had against the Allies. Okay? At that point, if you would have talked to an Allied soldier, hey, you guys are winning, he'd go, are you kidding? We're in a desperate toe-to-toe fight. But the reality was, that was all they had left. And after that, that was going to be the collapse of the war. Okay? You need to understand, where, where, where are we right now? If Normandy is the battle that Jesus fought on Calvary, we're at the battle of the bulge right now. I'm giving you that analogy. And you need to understand it. Yeah, there's evil, but it's losing. And the best way to respond to evil is to resist it, knowing that it cannot win out in the end. I like that. Wow, is that ever great? Well, let me close, because I've run out of time. Okay. I'm going to close something at Craig Cooster. I, you know, I've been listening to some, uh, a series of, of uh, DVDs on Revelation by him. I'm reading a lot on this book. He says this, John assumes, and I think rightly, that people order their lives with an eye to what they believe has the ultimate place. So whatever you think is the most important thing, you're going to focus your life there. That's what he's saying. The dragon personifies deception, brutality, arrogance, and injustice. It's easy to see why people might think those forces run the world and why they might respond by simply giving in and going along. Isn't that kind of the temptation today? Giving in and going along. That's what's happening. John, however, recognized that the forces of evil operate in part by trying to breed a cynical complacency about the world. He challenges the idea that destructive forces can have ultimate place by showing that the power of the creator is superior and different from that of the destroyers. And we read that at the very end when the serpent now spews water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. And yet we read, but the earth opens its mouth and swallows the river that the dragon had spewed. In other words, God has a way of taking care of his people. God has a way of allowing righteousness to triumph over evil. But you know what, what has to happen in our lives? We have to be willing to resist evil. And I believe that's the great challenge that we're faced with in this moment in our lives. Because we see evil all around us. And wherever we don't stand, 
evil prevails. And whenever we resist and stand, it backs down. Because ultimately, righteousness will prevail. Let's stand tonight. Well, it's a very symbolic chapter. How many go? That was a lot there. Lots of symbols. Trying to unpack it. I think this chapter is dealing with you know, the origin of evil. I think it's dealing with you know, the power of God over evil. And it's challenging us as believers you know, to know that evil will not prevail. That God's plan and purposes will prevail in our lives. But you know, I think what has to happen, and this is probably true of all of us, for us to fight the good fight, for us to maintain that profession of faith, we need moral courage. How many go, that's true? We really do need moral courage. So what, what, what will it take to have more moral courage? I think we need to be in the wilderness with God. I think we need an encounter with God. We need to be full of the spirit of the living God. Isn't it true that so often we have all these distractions around us and we have all these challenges before us and a lot of us, we're dealing with a lot of personal burdens and problems. Isn't that right? Don't we almost feel overwhelmed by our own personal issues so that we don't seem to be able to handle the real battle that's happening because we're so consumed with our own challenges? And yet I think God's Spirit needs to come and fill our hearts. That you and I should not be moved by the things we're seeing but by what God's Word declaring because God's word is eternal and the things that we're seeing are temporary so that's why I said tonight I want us to do something I want us to just cast our problems at the feet of Jesus I want us to open our hearts to him tonight I want us to have our eyes open like the servant had his eyes open and saw the power of God displayed against the power of evil we need to have an encounter with the true and the living God tonight we need to have an experience with him we need to be full of his spirit amen Yeah, I believe that. And so let's just open our hearts to God. You know what? Let's just lift our hands and say, Lord, I'm going to lay down all my burdens. I want to lay down all my troubles, all my trials, all my anxieties. I pray right now that your spirit would come, that you would fill us right now with moral courage, that you would give us an amazing level of grace. And Lord, when we read in this amazing story that we, we overcome evil, not by rendering evil in turn, But Lord, we receive your grace and goodness so that when evil comes to us, we will overcome it by doing good. We will overcome by forgiving. We will overcome by blessing. We will overcome, Lord, recognize that the people that are doing this, they're actually deceived, that they need to be set free. They need to be saved. We're not fighting against people, Lord. The people are not our enemies. The people are not our problems. We recognize it's a principality and a power and evil forces that are working through the blindness and the folly. They're blinded. They're being led astray by a power greater than themselves. Lord, therefore, we need a power greater than ourselves to stand against that power. We need a power greater than the power of evil. We need your presence filling our lives tonight so that we can stand in the truth, that we can speak the truth in love, that we can do what is good. We can bless our enemies, even as Elisha captured an army father, and then they blessed them and freed them. Wow, that is a picture of what we should be doing, oh God. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you will use us, that we will be the kind of people like Elijah. We will be people of great influence, Lord. We will have cause havoc in the kingdom of darkness, oh God. We will be able, Lord, to see the people being set free from darkness. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.